Good morning, family. How you doing? Good. It's good to see you. Heather, thank you for reading for us. Grant and team, thank you for leading us uh, in worship through, through music. Uh, my name is John. I serve as one of the pastors for our family. And we're presently in a series going through the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter. Uh, so the, the, the passage that, um, that Heather uh, read for you, chapter 5, is the passage that we'll explore this morning. Some of the content may have surprised you a little bit. Um, two of my children are in, in the room right now, so just as a dad, I'll be speaking um, in what I would consider to be in a, a, an appropriate way, uh, dealing with this content as honestly as we can, uh, but also recognizing that we do, we do have children present. I will be using the same terminology that's there in the text, so if as a parent you, you feel the need to uh, take action for one of your kids, I'm going to pray, and I'll pray a little longer than normal, so everybody will have their eyes closed and their heads bowed. And if you need to move with a kid, I wish we had our second hour elementary class going on. We've been phasing stuff back in, kind of post, you know, heightened COVID stuff. So we did in the last hour. We don't um, in this hour, but um, um, you're the parents. You know what to do. So I'm going to pray and uh, we'll get right down to work. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, giving us grace. Father, we thank you for adopting us into the family. We, every one of us are rebel kids. Um, our only hope was that we would be adopted in by a, a father who was kind enough to show us mercy instead of the judgment that we deserve. And that's exactly what you did, but still the judgment had to be, it had to go somewhere. And so Jesus, you, you stood in our place for every one of us to take the judgment that we deserve so that we could receive mercy in place of judgment and be adopted in. Father, help us to rehearse that beautiful truth of the gospel daily so that our hearts don't grow cold we don't forget what it took to adopt us in and to keep us what it takes to keep us in the family. And Father, give us hearts that are warmed by that truth and live in response to it for your fame and for the good of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series theme is Gospel Formed, Becoming Who We Are, a united family in a fractured city. We've been learning that we exist as God's family. We are our Father's representatives in this world. Guys, that is a high and holy calling. We're not playing at church. We don't exist for our own comfort or our own good. We exist to represent our Father, uh, to live for his fame, and to live for the good of others, other rebels like us who have not yet been adopted in. Our family is united around Jesus, or we should be, because when we are not united around Jesus, we will divide over every secondary and tertiary matter under the sun, uh, politics, and on and on and on and on. So united around Jesus, called to be light and darkness, called to be a culture of life and a culture of death, called to be advocates of and proponents of and practitioners of justice and mercy in a systemically unjust world and a savagely merciless world and called to live for our Father's fame and the good of people in our city. Today, what we're going to learn is this. Here's the sermon summary right up front. Becoming who we are, like becoming that kind of family, happens as we prioritize the collective health, uh, spiritual and relational health of our family by mourning the presence of sin, not out there, but in here, and when necessary, removing unrepentant, professed Christians from our family. Let me just restate that a little bit differently. We will be a united family around Jesus, a united family in a fractured city, only when and only as we prioritize the collective spiritual and relational health of our family by mourning the presence of sin and when necessary, removing unrepentant, professed Christians from our family. 
The outline of this chapter is pretty straightforward. You probably all could have, you probably all could have written it down as Heather was reading for us. Very early in the chapter, Paul gives us the situation. Verses one and two, it's, very, it's just very to the point. Here, here's the problem. So here's the situation. And then kind of verses two to five, he rolls into the solution. Like with the authority of, a, of an apostle, he's like, guys, this is exactly what needs to happen in the life of this church family to make this situation right. And then before he wraps things up, he kind of sidetracks a little bit. You saw some stuff in there about leavened bread and Passover, and it's a little confusing to us because we're not really as connected to our Jewish roots in the Old Testament as we should be, but he uses those verses to talk about how sacred this responsibility is, how serious it is, uh, not only for the life of the church family, but for God's fame in our city. Like This is a sacred and serious trust that our Father has given us. And then he kind of zooms back out at the end of the chapter as if to let us know as family members, hey guys, like I know this whole chapter has been about this, this particular situation in the family, but this is not just all about sex. Really, this entire conversation has to do with submission to Jesus in all of life. Submission to Jesus in every area of life. So we'll look at some takeaways for us there. So let's get right after it. The situation in verses 1 and 2. Paul said, when he, wrote, when he wrote, he said, hey, there's a man in your church family, a professed follower of Jesus, so not nominal, not a visitor, like an all-in member of the family, who has engaged and was engaging in an ongoing sexual relationship with his dad's wife. Presumably, his dad had died, but to be honest with you, we just don't know. We don't really have any other relational details beyond that. And Paul starts out, he says, man, guys, listen, it is actually reported. And the word actually doesn't mean anything. Like you can turn to the diction in your dictionary right on your phone right now, and it's going to look right back at you and say actually does not mean anything. Um, the word actually simply adds emotional weight to anything that you say. So rather than, rather than just saying, man, I can't believe you did that, you'd be like, Ben, I can't believe you actually did that. Right? That's, that's, it just gives weight, emotion to what we're trying to say. No change in meaning, just emphasis. So actually, the word actually is actually the world's first emoji. Like it's kind of meaningless in a sentence definition-wise. It just gives, it kind of communicates emotion. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's expressing horror. I mean, he's expressing shock and disbelief and deep concern and sadness, all mixed up in one as well he should be, as well he should be. What was actually reported? He said there was sexual immorality, a key word here, among them. We already saw that Paul's going to zero in on one specific situation, but the point needs to be made while he highlights one extreme example. It wasn't the only situation in the family that he could have talked about. He said sexual immorality was among them. We looked at that word a couple weeks ago, and to be among, it's kind of like if you have a recipe and you bake, you bake eggs into your recipe. Once the thing's baked, you can't remove the eggs. Like It's part of the culture of whatever's being set on the table. The cold reality. I mean, sexual immorality was baked into the culture of the church in the same way it had been baked into the culture of their city. The word sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. Porneia, uh, in Paul's usage, is a general term meant to include all sexual expression, all sexual intimacy outside of a heterosexual marriage. Now, this sermon uh, will not deal extensively with our sexuality. Uh, however, 
really one year ago today, kind of coincidentally, one year ago today, we preached a sermon <clears throat> entitled Sexuality and the Imago Day." If you're looking for that on the website, it's under our relational series. Um, if you're looking for it in iTunes, the date is October 13. But in that sermon, we took a comprehensive view of what God's word has to say about our human sexuality as image bearers of God and what the gospel has to say kind of about the redemption of that sexuality. So we just don't have the time and the text doesn't go there. So we're not, we're not going that direction. But there's some really important groundwork um, in that sermon. I'd encourage you to listen to it maybe later this week. But here in the text, we learn that there was sexual immorality among them. And guys, I think what we first need to realize is when right, this church was not gospel formed. That was kind of like Paul was coming after that every chapter. He's like, guys, you're more formed by the culture than you are by your father's voice. And so this kind of clues us into the reality that when we are not gospel formed, there will be, not maybe, will be sexual immorality among us too in the same way that it is among our culture. You know, maybe there's one difference for us 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this letter was originally written, sexual immorality then, sexual immorality now. But I think for them, culturally, theirs was almost exclusively in person. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have smartphones, and so they didn't have the privacy that the internet and those devices allow. If they were going to participate in sexual immorality, maybe it was private for a little while, but it was in person, and it had to happen somewhere. I mean, so it was a, it was a fairly public thing. Ours tends to be online, virtual, and far more private. But guys, we need to be humble enough to recognize that online, virtual, sexual immorality is no less immoral than in-person sexual immorality. It is still a form of adultery. If you were married and you were committing sexual immorality virtually or online, it is, it is a form of adultery just as if you were unfaithful to your spouse with another person in flesh and blood. It is, a, it is an expression of adultery. That is a real person on the other side of the screen. That is a real person. But even if it's not, a digital partner or a sex doll is still a partner. And listen, the next chapter is going to focus on personal sexual expression. So if, you know, after the first eight minutes of our time together this today, you actually choose to come back next week, uh, just know that the next chapter deals kind of much more in a personal way with, um, with sexual immorality and sexual temptation. It, it deals with it personally. This chapter deals more with, okay, how do we respond to this as a community when it's present among us? And Paul writes, hey family, there is a kind of sexual immorality among you that is not even tolerated among the pagans. That's just Paul's word for non-Christian. So he's saying, uh, our culture is supposed to be distinct and shaped by the gospel, but to be honest, there's sexual immorality going on among you that's not even tolerated in the culture that has nothing to do with the gospel. That's saying something. Because in regards to sexual expression, Corinth was us. I mean, we, 2,000 years later, are Corinth. Uh, some of you have watched this show with the title, This Is Us. That has nothing to do with sexual immorality, but just the fact remains, like that title, This Is Us. Like, this is us right here. Uh, we would tend to use words like sexually progressive. Uh, maybe better to use the word digressive. Nonetheless, they had progressed or digressed uh, just as much as we had. Maybe they were further down the road than we are. You know, like for our culture, something like Cuties hits Netflix, and that stirs a kind of a national conversation with, hey, uh, I'm dropping my subscription. 
Um, that'll change because Corinth was probably a little further down the road. So something like Cuties didn't actually cause subscription to decline from Netflix, like Corinthian Netflix subscriptions would have exploded with that content. So I think they were a little further down the road, but nonetheless, here's a quote from their culture. I mean, this is an actual quote uh, that, a, that a historian has from their city in this time. It says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the, of, of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. You're like, John, you were right. They're definitely further down the road than we are. That's not us. And to that, I would say, no, they're not really that much further down the road than we are. And uh, that is us. That's us. We keep mistresses too. We keep mistresses too. They're just virtual now. So they're easier to keep. Our mistresses are virtual. In a recent survey, uh, Barna, which is an organization that routinely surveys churches and kind of Christian subculture and gathers data, really strong reputation over decades now uh, for accuracy. And in a recent survey, they said 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Guys, this is us. But we're not just picking on men this morning. Here's also what Barna had to say recently. They said of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, so that's, that's us right there, 18 to 24, that's our, that's our church, right? Unless you're old and you fall outside of the, right? Like, you all know, we're not really a church here. This is like a youth group right outside of Gate 2 Street, right? <laughs> and then with some youth group leaders mixed in, like Ron and Sean and myself, some old guys. But do you guys see the number? That's men and women, guys. 76%, three out of four. Three out of four of every person in this room has a virtual mistress. Sexual immorality was among them, and it's among us too. This is us. And again, next week we will deal with this on a much more personal and gentle, but a personal way. Today is kind of the community, community response. But still, even in this culture, there were lines you didn't cross. Not many, but still some lines. And one of those lines was having sex with your stepmom. You, didn't just, you, you just did not go there. Uh, one historian, here's another uh, tweet from history, um, right out of the history books. Here's what they had to say about this relationship. They said, a relationship between a man and a stepmom was considered incestuous and was treated with a sense of outrage and disgust and punishable by deportation to an island. This is in the legal code. Uh, check this out. A legal scholar refers to such a case as, like, this is actually how it was. It was codified in the legal code, criminal relations. So for them, this was one of the very few lines you didn't cross. And for us, I mean, it still is. We will turn our nose up at this expression of sexual immorality. But here was this dude in the family, a professed follower of Jesus, who was publicly crossing this line. What's more, Paul writes, man, you guys are still arrogant. Like, you're proud. It's not a good look. Now, some people read that and read it as if there are kind of two options here. They were proud of themselves because look at how progressive we are in our culture. We're open and we're affirming and Jesus loves everybody and it doesn't matter really how you live. Like you are, you are welcome here. Look at how progressive we are. 
And so it's possible they were proud that way, but not likely. I think the other, probably on the other side, Paul's just saying, man, historically you're proud. Like you think you are such a spiritual, godly, mature, gospel-centered place. But look at you. You're more formed by the culture, and your pride is blinding you to what's going on, blinding you to the point that you're complacent. You're kind of lulled to sleep. You're, not, you're, you're in denial. You're just letting it slide. So there's the situation. That's Corinth, and guys, that's Okinawa. Like, that's us, okay? There's the situation. Now, here's Paul's solution. He writes with the authority of an apostle in verses 2 to 5. He gives the solution. You see two actions, time to mourn and time to remove this guy from the family. So let's start with mourning. Mourning is not just an emotional response, but it's not less than emotions, Paul's saying, you're like totally unfeeling with this thing. It's time to express, the, to have the right emotional response. But mourning so often throughout scripture is so much more than just emotional response. It's an emotional response that leads to action. And that's where Paul's gonna take them, uh, take them to with the removal of this guy. But first, the emotions. They should be feeling some kind of sadness, some kind of deep grief. Like we should read those kind of numbers on the screen and just be... Honestly, forlorn and devastated and crushed that what Barna is saying would be true about our family. We should be emotionally wrecked by that reality. They weren't, and quite frankly, we rarely are. They needed to connect with that pain and sit in it. That's what Paul's calling them to do. That'd be good for us to do. That'd be good for us to do. Mourn over what? Mourn over this young dude's self-deception, his destruction. He was destroying himself through this relationship. Mourn for the woman who is also being destroyed through this relationship. She is being crushed. Mourn for their family. Imagine, it's not just a man and his stepmom. Imagine the other families that had been left behind when dad died. Like there is a family that is affected by this. We mourn for them. But what Paul's really driving at in this chapter is that we as a family learn how to mourn when Jesus' reputation in a city is just absolutely destroyed by the very people who exist to put his reputation on display in all the beauty that it should be displayed in. Paul says it was reported. In other words, meaning it was known widely. It's not just that Paul was aware of this situation. The neighborhood in Corinth was aware that this was going on. Like Jesus' reputation was being trampled on the dirty streets of Corinth. And we're all too familiar with situations like that. Uh, Liberty University is one of the biggest Christian universities in our country. So this was a national conversation just a couple weeks ago when Jerry Falwell found himself again, because it was a pattern, caught up in a national conversation over his sexual indiscretion. Um, and I realize some of you are students are there, and you should continue to be students there. Keep going. Um, it, it's a good school with a lot of good people. But there was cancerous, gospel-deficient leadership at the top, and it was trickling down into the culture of the school, and he's been removed. But it, there was a year's process for that to happen. And even recently, some of you know the name Ravi Zacharias. Lifetime of serving as an apologist and just a well-known, well-thought-of speaker who impacted a ton of college students, myself included. He's in the grave right now, but in the grave, accusations have come from several different points, credible accusations suggesting that he was involved with ongoing sexual immorality for much of his ministry life. And guys, when those conversations go public in a city or in a national context, it defames Jesus' reputation. 
And we should mourn that. We should mourn that. That's what Paul is saying. We should mourn that his reputation is just trampled on. Mourn for the health of the church family that will be impacted. Mourn that we haven't cared enough to do something about this. Mourn our own culpability before God that we're responsible for this. Mourn the corruption of his family's culture and then remove the person who is unrepentant in the sin. So Paul says, remove the man from the family. He's out. His unrepentant, ongoing, it's not that he sinned once and he was remorseful and owned it and owned up to it and said, I need help and I want to kill this sin and I want to live in submission to Jesus. Man, we have all the grace in the world for that. It was the exact opposite. It was an embracing of this pattern of rebellion against Christ and uh, making it public and kind of flaunting it and refusing to respond when the church would call him to accountability. He's out, Paul says. He's, he's, he's got to be kicked out of the family. Well, how? Paul says, the next time you gather as a family, verses 4 and 5, when you are assembled, you are de to deliver this man to Satan. He says, I'm going to be with you in spirit. Uh, in other words, they were going to read this letter out loud in their next public worship gathering. Paul's saying, I'm going to be with you in spirit as this thing is read. He still is every time when we read this morning. He is, in a sense, with us in spirit. These are the words that God led him to write. And he says, you will be gathered in the power of Jesus, meaning that the church has a delegated authority from Jesus to act on behalf of the Father for the good of the family and for the good of the offending person and for the good of the people out in the neighborhood. We don't have this individual authority. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us can individually pronounce this kind of judgment. Jesus says it is for the family when we're gathered because his power and his authority are uniquely present when we do. He said, as a family, you need to look this man in the eyes and have an honest conversation publicly as a family, acknowledging your loss of confidence in his profession of faith based on his persistence in this rebellion, that we can no longer affirm his professed allegiance to Jesus. It means nothing to us because his life demonstrates that he, has a, he may have a profession of faith to Jesus, but he has a pattern of faith, a profession to Satan and not to Christ, or a pattern of profession to himself and not to Jesus. And then excommunicate him. Kick him out of the family. He's out. He's on the outside looking in. And guys, that sounds really harsh to us. But to be fair, it sounds harsh because so many of us grew up in churches that were more formed by the culture and less formed by the gospel. And so we, there was kind of this, in America especially, we, we developed this low view of the church and this high view of the individual. And because we weren't really gospel-shaped, most of us never saw this practiced. I mean, most of us have never seen this practiced in a healthy way anyway. And sadly, because... We're not, so often our churches are not formed by the gospel. For those of us who have seen it practiced, many of us have seen this carried out in a very damaging, ungracious, unmerciful, inappropriately public, full of shaming and guilting kind of a way. And that's antichrist as well. It's not okay to practice it poorly. It matters how we practice this. But what Paul's getting at is this. This what he's calling them to right here has more to do with the health of the church family 
and Jesus' reputation in the city than it does the unrepentant sinner himself. We'll see that in a minute. But kicking him out of the family is not the end game. His restoration is the end game. Like they're doing this for his good. Notice it says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, here's the purpose statement, do this so that he'll be saved. Do this so that he'll be rescued. Do this so his heart will be changed. So let's break that down. Paul says, deliver him to Satan. So if church is a family, think of it in terms of a family, Paul's saying you need to take an action so that he loses the protection of the family, he loses the presence of the father in the family, and he loses, he loses kind of the power of God's protection over him in the family. He's out now, he's outside the family. And so the protection, or um, yeah, the protection of being in the family is gone. The special presence of God is gone, leaving his soul empty and aching for that, hopefully. And notice what they're saying. They're saying, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. How do we normally pray for each other as brothers and sisters, though, as it relates to Satan? How are we praying? God, protect Zach this week, right? Protect Matt, protect Ace, like protect my brothers from Satan's activity and temptation. Don't let him have any success against them. Don't let him, don't let them be deceived. Don't let him destroy them in any way. Prayers flipped. Now we're praying that through the power, power, the work of Satan, that this man would be so humbled and brought so low that his one remaining recourse would be to cry out to his father for help. The destruction of the flesh is not referring necessarily to his physical body or life. It's referring to our rebel uh, tendencies or our orientation, if you will. So in, in the Bible, flesh is so often used for our orientation around ourselves, like our manner of living that's in rebellion to God versus being in the spirit, which would be living in submission to Christ. Here's an example in Galatians 5. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have any of you who belong to Jesus actually been crucified in your physical flesh? So it's gotta mean something else, right? It's gotta, it's gotta mean something else. That's what, so what it's talking about is that rebel tendency, the rebel ways, my orientation around myself, which expresses itself in passions and desires, that's gotta be put to death. And so what we're asking the Father to do on behalf of this person is that in handing him over to Satan, he would run his rebel tendencies down to the very end and be destroyed in them so that he would be saved. In other words, just like the prodigal son, that when he leaves home and goes and follows every desire he's got and every passion he's got in opposition to his dad, believing I will, I will be fulfilled through this expression. If I can just do me, I will find fulfillment that he would be delivered over to Satan to run that road to the very end and having found the end that he would be all spent up, hit rock bottom, be broken, alone, helpless, and needy, and finally have the humility to cry out to his father and say the simple words, Dad, I need your help. And I was wrong to run away. That's the aim in what Paul is calling the church to do. You're like, man, John, that sounds so unloving. but it's not. It's actually the most loving thing that the church can do for him. It would be unloving to allow this brother to persist in his rebellion alongside an affirmation that I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus and I submit to him because dog, no you don't. I'm not gonna let you live in that delusion. 
And while our father is concerned for his soul, as we should be too, again, look in the text, the greater concern is actually with the health of the church and the reputation of Jesus in this city. But even still, the father cares about the soul of this man, and he wants to see him restored and reconciled. So there's the solution. We've seen the situation, seen the solution. Now Paul kind of talks for a moment about how sacred and serious this thing is. He says, guys, your pride is a really bad look here. It's really bad. You're acting like this man's sin as well, eh, just his own sin that's not affecting anybody else with no impact on the family, but you are dead wrong. His sin is like leaven, verse six. Just a tiny bit of leaven will raise an entire lump of dough. So what Paul's saying is one person's rebel tendency will impact the entire church family, just one. Personal sin It's really kind of a false term. There is no such thing as personal sin. There really is no such thing as private sin. There's sin we think we're doing in in private that will only kind of impact me. Those are all lies. There's no category for that kind of sin. Personal sin always contaminates the community. Paul says, you guys have all been infected by this one man's choices. The culture of this family has been so corrupted that The very purpose you exist for, to display the beauty of the gospel and the truth of my character, obliterated, veiled, gone because of this one man's public sin. It's been corrupted. And you're boasting, man, it is a bad look. And then he gives three examples as to how serious they are. Each of his examples are connected to the Jewish Passover. Most of us are very unfamiliar with that, so let me just give you a little background. Passover was the event which occurred just before Israel was released from captivity in Egypt. Remember that Sunday school story? And at the Passover, every firstborn in the land of Egypt was going to be killed unless they believed God's offer of mercy instead and they submitted to him and they killed a sacrificial lamb in place of the firstborn and they splattered the blood on the doorposts of their home, kind of symbolically to represent, hey, this home is in submission to God, and we want that mercy, and we don't want judgment. God offered mercy before this event took place. And then the day after Passover, every member of the family was to be ready to roll on out of Egypt as freed people with nothing slowing them down, to include no meal prep. So no leaven, no time for the dough to rise. We're going strictly on saltines, just saltines for everybody. We're rolling out with a package of saltines. Nasty. And so every year thereafter, the Jewish people would commemorate the Passover with a a week-long feast. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And at this time every year, all the old leaven was to be thrown away, just all gone, kind of symbolically. And they were going to eat unleavened bread for just one week. And then the week following, fresh leaven would be reintroduced into the diet. Their dough could rise again. They could eat real bread and come off the saltines. And so for Paul, leaven is symbolic of our rebel tendency. So he kind of gives us three quick metaphors. We see them in verses 7 and 8. The first one is church as a house. And he says, guys, it is time to cleanse out the old leaven. It's time to clean house. Guys, our pride keeps us from cleaning house. We're either blind to the fact that our house is a wreck, or we don't care anymore, or we've forgotten why our exists, but pride blinds us to this. And our Father, through Paul, is calling the church in Corinth and calling us to the reality that, guys, it's always time to clean house. It's just always time to clean house. 
and then the church as dough later in verse seven, he says, it's time to be a new lump of dough as you, you, you're not living like you're unleavened, but you really are like God made you an unleavened family. No more sin, like no more rebellion from him. You really are unleavened. Why are you unleavened? Look at what he says for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. And that's Paul's way of saying, guys, it's time for us as a family to become who we are. And who are we? Well, as a result of Jesus being our Passover lamb, his death, his blood protected us from judgment. So we're, we're rescued from judgment. That's who we are. But it did more than that. It purified us from sin. So we're protected from judgment. We're, we're, we're being purified from, we've been purified and we're being purified from this sin. So Paul's saying, let's live like the family he has created us to be. This is really the verse where we, it's a big theme in 1 Corinthians, becoming who we are, becoming who the Father says we are. The leaven's got to go. We need to live into the reality of who the Father says that we are. And then the third metaphor is church as celebrants. He says in verse 8, let us celebrate the festival. So they would celebrate for a week. Um, but guys, with Jesus as a true and better Passover lamb, we don't celebrate on Sundays. We don't celebrate for a week. Like all of life is lived in celebration of the good work that our Father has done to rescue us. He rescued us and he restored us. And so Paul's saying, family, let's live in response to the good work that God has done on our behalf. No more leaven of malice and evil. General terms for living in rebellion to the Father who rescued us. No more of that. Rather, we should, live in the, with, we should be like the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So sincerity, just quite frankly, no more fronting. Like, you got leaven in your life, dog. Like, so do I. Like, there's leaven in the house. Time to be sincere about that. We don't play at this and we don't pretend. We don't show up here because we're good to go. We show up here because we desperately need our Father's work in our lives. No more fronting about that. Time for some humility. Crush the pride. Sincerity. Repent. Admit that I have leaven, that you have leaven. Our community does. And purge those who deny those realities from our family, for our father's fame and for the good of the family, family health. Sincerity and truth, we are God's family with a high and holy calling, and we have got to live into that beautiful reality at any cost. It's not about us, really. It really isn't. It's about our father's reputation in the city. It's about Jesus' reputation in Okinawa. And it is about the good of the people who are not yet rescued and adopted in. We are representing God to them. We are displaying the gospel to them. The leaven has got to go. This is not a game, Paul's saying. It's not a game. So there's the sacred and serious nature of this thing. And then Paul kind of wraps the chapter with a, with a conversation that we need to hear reminding us, this, look, this is not really just about your sexuality. It's really about submission to Jesus in all of life. So Paul wants to be clear here. This is about glad submission to Jesus in all of life. Verse 11 says this, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so no professed Christian, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to share a meal with them. Guys, you see what he included on there in addition to sexual immorality? Greed. Like, that's pretty baseline, isn't it? Greed. Idolatry is anything in God's place. So living with a profession of faith in Jesus, but at the same time kind of maintaining this allegiance to my career 
or to my finances or to my whatever, fill in the blank. Idolatry is pretty baseline too. It's pretty all-encompassing. Reviler, that just means a slanderer. That just means somebody who speaks poorly about other people when they're not around. A drunkard living under the influence of alcohol or any substance instead of the spirit. A swindler is somebody who objectifies people for personal gain, financial or otherwise. See, it's not just about the sex. This is about submission to Jesus in all of life. And it's critical that we as a family have a culture where we, that's what we value and that's what we're going after because that is what we will take to display the beauty of the gospel the way that it deserves and needs to be displayed. So this what Paul is calling them to hear is about cultivating and safeguarding the culture of our father's family and Jesus' reputation in the city. Guys, it's also about family accountability, not neighborhood condemnation. This is really important. Look at verses 9 and 10 and then 12 and 13. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But guys, you misunderstood me. I wasn't at all talking about the sexually immoral people in your neighborhood or your workplace or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Because then if if that's what I was talking about, you would need to go out of the world. You need to move. You need to quit. You need to go AWOL tonight, dog. Like you can't go back to work tomorrow. It's over. Guys, when we misunderstand the gospel, that's when Christians build like convents and cloisters and co-ops and communities to protect themselves from the culture. But we're a sent family. God sends us into those places. He said, what what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Paul says, that's not our lane. This is not about neighborhood condemnation. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul's asking a question, expecting a yes answer back. This is, most of us don't know this because we've been more shaped by the culture than the gospel. Yes, it is our role to judge within, as a family, within the life of the church family. God judges those outside. Your role, he says, is purge the evil person from among you. Now, don't cringe at that sentence. Um, Every one of us have remaining evil tendencies within us. What Paul means is uh, we're purging out the person who prioritizes those remaining evil tendencies over his allegiance to Jesus and over his affection to Jesus. Not once, because we all do it once today and tomorrow. And the day. We're talking about pattern of unrepentant allegiance to people and things other than Christ. But we're a sent family. Churches are not supposed to withdraw in pretentious judgment of their neighborhoods. Jesus calls us to go, engage, press in, and be present with the good news that Jesus offers mercy to sinners. As a sent family, our family culture is absolutely critical to this mission. That's why Paul's calling them to take this step. And so for that reason, those members who profess to follow Jesus but refuse to increasingly submit to Jesus in all of life are to be removed from the family for their good, for their good, and for the good of the family, and for the Father's fame, and for the good of those who are not yet adopted in. It's bigger than sex. It's about submission to Jesus in all of life. All right, just a couple quick takes before we wrap this thing up. The first first take is this. This chapter really kind of speaks to our sexuality in a way that we're not used to, and it pushes back on the way that we really are culturally formed in our view of our sexuality. We're not really very gospel formed in that. And here's what I mean. According to this chapter, who's got authority over John Ransom's expressions of sexuality? John or Jesus? Jesus, guys, 
Human sexuality is not for humans to define or redefine. Uh, Human sexuality is this beautiful gift given to us by the Father. And we are called to live in submission to that beautiful gift. In submission to parameters, by the way, that actually exist for your joy and your flourishing and for your good. But it's not mine. I don't have the authority to redefine. And again, we just can't deal with it uh, comprehensively here. But I really encourage you to listen to that sermon entitled Sexuality in the Imago Dei. But there's another piece that pushes on us. My sexuality is not really as private and as personal as, uh, as the culture has discipled me to believe. I actually do have a real accountability to you as a family in the way that I choose to express myself in my sexuality. But here's a key. That is an invited accountability, not a forced accountability. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why church membership matters so much to us here. Because I want you to know if you're visiting, like you're not in for an awkward conversation with us. We are not inviting ourselves into your world without your permission, right? That's what cults do and unhealthy gospel deficient churches may do, but not gospel formed families. See, church membership assumes responsibility and invites accountability, meaning, when we join, we say to the family, I'm inviting you into my life, and I want you to speak whenever you see me out of step with Jesus. I'm inviting that. You have permission to step into my life. And the Father gives us the responsibility of providing that kind of care. So it's not a witch hunt. It's not a witch hunt. It's simply us as a family following through what the Father calls us to and following through what you've invited us to do when you've said, yeah, I want to be a member of this family. If you've not taken that step, we're not forcing ourselves on you in that kind of a way. It's invited. It's not, it's not forced. It's also a last resort. What we read in 1 Corinthians 5 is to be preceded by days, weeks, months of patiently, patiently pursuing people having hard conversations, praying for them, calling them to account. This is last resort, not like, not like our trigger finger's happy and we just can't wait to squeeze the next round off. This is last resort and none of us honestly would wanna have to go here. Remember, it's about restoration, not punishment. It's about going appropriately public, not indiscriminately public. And by that, I mean it's not for the neighborhood to know. It's, this is just in-house family business. We, we do this in a way where we're not slandering people. It's, it's, it's in the family. And guys, it's not about perfection, it's about patterns. We recognize that we're all rescued rebels. And as rescued rebels, every one of us bring a, brings a brokenness into the family. We are all in the process of healing. And this healing will take our entire love, our entire lives. I have brokenness because of the rebel choices that I've made. But I also have brokenness because of the rebel choices that other people have made and have harmed me in the process. So we all have stories like that. So I want you to know, family, for those of you who have that kind of brokenness and you're trying to heal, you are in no danger here of being spotlighted for your brokenness. You are in no danger of being placed out of the family for your brokenness. We pray for you. We work with you for your healing and your flourishing. This is not about grinding broken people into the ground. Guys, it's also the acknowledgement that every one of us have remaining rebel tendencies. And so as a family, we don't hide them. We're like, yeah, we got remaining rebel tendencies, and we're going to kill them together. We're going to choke them out. We're going to tap them out with the gospel. We're going to go into the ring together, and we're not coming out until these rebel tendencies tap out on the mat. Like, that's how we live as a family. So there's no guilt or shame in acknowledging, yes, I have rebel tendencies. The family culture has got to be such that, yeah, I've got a ton of rebel tendencies. I need you to take me in the ring with you and please fight with me to put these things to death. That's what we do. 
So again, if that's you, you're in no danger here. Confession is meant to be life-giving and liberating for your good. So we acknowledge honestly with sincerity and truth and we fight together. This is your home. This is your family. You are in no danger here. I want to close with this. Um, in the four and a half year life of our church, we've, we've had to go to this extent two times, once with a man who was a member of our church and once with a, a woman. And I actually, I just want to read briefly for you the letter that we sent to the man uh, prior to having this public conversation as a family. And it's heavily redacted, so there's no personal detail. I wrote, we would like to begin by expressing our love for you and our commitment to you. Not only are you a brother in Christ, you are a member of our church family. You have committed yourself to us and we to you, and we love you, we are for you. Every word in this letter is motivated by our desire to see you living in joyful submission to King Jesus. And that is why we are writing to you now. As the elders of our church family, we have a God-given responsibility to shepherd your soul. In this season, that responsibility compels us to call you to repentance. Because by your own admission, you are not living in joyful submission to Christ. You verbally confess affection for Jesus and allegiance to him as your king, but your present choices stand in direct contradiction to that confession. Through the actions that you are taking, you are living in open rebellion to Christ your king who calls you to fidelity and covenant faithfulness in your marriage. We have confronted you and called you to repentance privately on multiple occasions since late November but you have not demonstrated a willingness to turn from your rebellion and turn to Christ. And so this letter represents one more attempt to warn you of the consequences of your choices and call you back to Jesus, who stands ready to show you mercy. As your elders, we together implore you to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. If you do not receive this warning and demonstrate a willingness to submit to Christ by repenting and seeking reconciliation, we will take the next steps in the process of church discipline by making this a public matter with our members. When we met last week, I walked you through what that process would look like. If you recall, we looked at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, and then we looked at a real-life example in 1 Corinthians 5. If you persist in your rebellion from Jesus, we will be compelled to take the next step that Paul directed the church in Corinth to take. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It would grieve us to take this step, but we would, out of submission to Christ and for your ultimate good. Even this difficult step by God's design is for your good. The goal of church discipline is never punishment. It is always restoration and reconciliation. We would much rather see you willingly turn from your sin before this step becomes necessary, but we will submit to Christ in this for his glory and your good. We plead with you, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And so that you are clear, here is what we believe your initial steps of repentance should include. And then those were, those were detailed there. Guys, I don't ever want to have to write another one of these letters again. Um, no pastoral team ever, ever wants to send that kind of a letter out. But can we just live in sincerity and truth for a moment, like just for a moment as a family? And truth be told, that letter could have been written to any one of us in a number of seasons of our lives on any given day. Our sin expressions may have been different. Our rebellion may have been different. They, you know, they probably are. But guys, we have so many remaining rebel tendencies. We all deserve to be kicked out of the family, to be excommunicated from the family. 
in sincerity and truth, we have so much to confess. And when we don't confess, we make God a liar. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Jesus, our Passover lamb, was kicked out of the family in our place. He was judged in your place and in my place. His sacrifice, his blood, covers us and cleanses us and positions us as adopted in and forever kept kids. His perfection, not our own, keeps us in the family. So family, this morning, let's receive this letter, this passage with humble hearts and view, view it this way. It's not about the man in Corinth. It's not about the church in Corinth. And this is not about the man that was a member of our church two years ago. This is about you. And this is about me. And this is about our church family this morning. This is my letter and yours. Let's mourn the presence of remaining rebel tendencies. And let's confess, like actually confess, naming them by specific name, those rebel tendencies that we have been running after. Let's do it together now, and I would just encourage you in person later to one of our pastors, to your missional community leader, your fight club partner, for Jesus' fame, for your own good, for the good of our family, and for the good of those who are not yet adopted in. Jesus needs to help us with this. Logan's gonna come as one of our pastors and lead us in a prayer of confession, and guys, I just, let's be real. Let's live in sincerity and truth. Let's get after this. And let's confess along with Logan. And in confessing, guys, our Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's confess and step into that life.